Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And Saul approved of his execution. His, of course, is Stephen's. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This chapter picks up directly after the death of Stephen, which we read about last week. He was brought before the council on trumped-up charges because he was preaching the gospel so effectively and the main thrust of his preaching was the Lord is not confined to the temple. He's not confined to just working among us in this city, which was entirely biblical, but it was not traditional and it was not what they wanted to hear. So they bring him before the council. He preaches the gospel boldly. He confronts and rebukes the council and they stoned him for it. And immediately we pick up with Saul approving of his execution and spearheading the first great persecution against the church. And there have been several throughout history, and there are some that are even going on today. I think of places like Nigeria, where a lot of violent persecution is still going on of the church. But this was the first one. Before, there had been pressure, there had been opposition, the apostles had been arrested, they had been beaten once, but that was more of a warning, really, than an attempt to crack down and stop what was going on. Now there's blood in the water and the sharks are coming for the church. And it's all spearheaded by this man named Saul, whom we saw in verse 58 of chapter 7, where it called him the young man Saul who watched over the cloaks of the elders as they were stoning Stephen. This, is, of course, is the apostle Paul. His name will be changed in a couple chapters, but as of right now, we've not gotten there yet. He is unconverted. He is full of all the same zeal that God would use to advance the gospel among the Gentiles, but it has not been redeemed yet, and now he's really no better than a religious terrorist at this point. We know he was a disciple of Gamaliel. He'll tell us that later. You remember Gamaliel a few chapters ago when they brought the apostles in. He was the mediating voice. He said, look, there's no point in us making a big deal out of this. If this is from the Lord, then we can't stop it. If it's not from the Lord, it's going to fizzle out. Leave it alone. Saul, though, was never one to take things halfway. We see this in the book of Acts later. We see it in Romans and 1 Corinthians and Galatians especially. That Paul was serious. Paul said, if this stuff is real, then we've got to do something about this. If these guys are heretics, they've got to go. We know he was from Tarsus which is in Cilicia, it's possible, I don't think I'm fully convinced, but we saw earlier that it was the synagogue of the freedmen that was coming after Stephen, which was people from Alexandria and Cilicia and some other places. I don't think Paul would have been necessarily associated with them, but I'm sure he was in there. He was a young seminary student, and they're not exactly known for their temperance. Uh, Galatians 1.14, Paul described himself and said, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul was the valedictorian, or Saul as he was known now. And he was with the Sanhedrin. He's a young man. He's not on the council, but he's there probably as an assistant with Gamaliel there. This is a very splendid opportunity for a young man trying to rise up in the ranks. And he sees Stephen preaching. He sees his face become like an angel. He sees them stone this guy. And he says, all right, 
it's time to go. We're going to put a stop to this so-called church. And he says he's going from house to house. This is likely, as we saw in Acts chapter 2, that they would have their big meetings in the temple, but there was so much love between the churches that every night they would just be in each other's houses, worshiping and praying and fellowshipping. Now Saul is showing up with soldiers to arrest these people, men and women both. He's not making any discrimination. If you're a Christian, you're going. I'm sure many of these were beaten. Perhaps some of them were even killed. It doesn't say. But we know that what Saul did in these couple of verses is going to haunt his conscience for a very, very long time. And you'll remember that many of these people, these Christians in the church, had come from outside of Jerusalem. They had come for the Feast of Pentecost when every Jewish man was supposed to come. And they had come into the city and they had gotten saved. And they had stayed at the church. And this is probably why they needed to have widow's distribution and take care of everybody. Well, now these people are going to be scattered back to where they came from. Thousands, tens of thousands of Christians were meeting in the temple every day. Now... You're not allowed to do that anymore. And it says that they were all scattered except the apostles. Imagine how the church would have felt in this moment. You go from the high point of miracles being done, the lame man being healed, Stephen performing miracles and refuting the attacks of the synagogues that were coming after him. But now they're being scattered. They must have felt like total failures. How do you think these apostles felt? What did we do wrong? Where did, where did we go wrong? I wonder, I'm sure, unfortunately, that there were many that were in that church that when they were finally put to the question, abandoned the Lord. And now you're seeing people walk away from Jesus for the first time. And maybe there were people that were blaming the apostles for this. You should have stopped Stephen. You knew he was stirring up trouble. And now he's dead. And now they're after us. You should have done something about this. And now all these are being scattered. Where before you had countless Christians coming into the temple, now maybe it's just a handful. Even the ones that are still in Jerusalem are afraid to come out. And the apostles feel like they're the only ones there. Jesus had told them this was going to happen. Remember John 16, verse 2. He said, They will put you out of the synagogues, and the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. That's exactly what Paul was doing. He thought he was serving the Lord by dragging these people off to prison and likely death for some of them. But what we're going to see, this is actually going to be to the church's advantage. Because these people are being scattered, but everywhere they go, they're going to take the gospel with them. So rather than the church being confined to the city of Jerusalem, it's going to spread all over the world. The Lord is going to use what the enemy meant for evil, and he's going to turn it for good. Sort of like the Lord did with Joseph. And I, I think this is appropriate. In the book of Hosea, Hosea had a child, and the Lord told him to name his son Jezreel. Jezreel means like to do this, to spread or to scatter or to sow. And the Lord gave a prophecy when his son Jezreel was born and said, the people of Israel are going to be scattered by the Assyrians. But then towards the end, he brings it around and he says, but I am going to sow them back in the land. And he's using that double meaning of the word Jezreel, which means to scatter or to sow. And in the same way here, you're seeing Jezreel. The people in the church are being scattered, but really it's the Lord sowing seeds. And this is exactly what we're going to see. Israel has rejected their Messiah, but there are others who are going to listen. And if you were living in this time, these might be the last people you would ever expect to listen to the gospel. But let's move into verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. 
They weren't afraid. They were preaching the word. And Philip, circle it. This is not the apostle Philip. This is one of the seven from before. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. The Christians are scattered, but it says that as they were scattered, they were preaching the word. They took the word with them. They weren't afraid. They weren't hiding. They weren't trying to keep it to themselves. Why'd you leave Jerusalem? Oh, you know, just time to go home. This miss, missing where I came from. I'll tell you why. Because I'm being persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ, who is God's Messiah, who was killed by the same people that are now persecuting us, but he's risen from the dead and his gospel cannot be stopped. Boom, immediately you're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. And we have focused especially on Philip. He was one of the seven that was chosen to oversee the distribution of the widows. Stephen was in that group as well. We're going to see Philip a lot throughout the book of Acts. Next week, we're going to talk a lot about him. And it seems like these seven, these were just the best of the best in the church. They were faithful in a few little things, and the Lord gave them a whole lot more to do. And he goes into Samaria. The ESV puts it, the city of Samaria. The city, as we know it in the Old Testament of Samaria, had been destroyed at this point. So it could possibly be translated a city of Samaria. The point is, he's in Samaria. <laughs> he's in the region above Judea, which is where Jerusalem was. Samaria is north of that, and it's south of Galilee, where Jesus did most of his ministry. And he's doing a whole lot of good. He's preaching, there's a revival being sparked, and many miracles are being done by his hands. Lots of lame people, lots of crippled people, and a lot of people with demons. And it says the demons are coming, crying out with a loud voice. It's an amazing story. Now you all know, the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Even Jesus did not do a lot of ministry there. He said, don't go to Samaria when I send you out, talking to the 70. He said, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And this is not good. They were full of prejudice. They were full of hate for the Samaritans. But in one sense, there, there was something wrong with the Samaritans. They were a corrupted race of people. They were Jews who had intermarried with the people around them. And there was a corrupt religion there as well. Turn with me to the book of Ezra, chapter 4. This is key to know. There's a couple Old Testament passages that really unlock what you see in the New Testament, and this is certainly one of them. Ezra, chapter 4. Ezra comes after Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, before you get to Psalms. Very, very important history. Ezra, chapter 4, and I'm going to read the first six verses. This is when... The children of Israel are coming back. They're now called Jews. Jew comes from the word Judah. And they first started being called that while they were in Babylon. Now they're coming back. They're finally being allowed by King Cyrus of Persia to return to Jerusalem. And they're starting to build the temple again. And in chapter 4, we read this. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Asaradon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So they're saying, Hey, we worship the Lord too. Can we help you build a temple? But Zerubbabel 
Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. You could write right there in the margin of Ezra chapter 4, Samaritans. This is the first time we see an interaction between the Samaritans, as they would come to be called, and the Jews. And it wasn't a great first meeting. <laughs> In 2 Kings chapter 17, you read that when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, they took all of the people and exiled them to other nations. This is what Assyria would do. They would take they would take the people from Texas and they'd put them in Washington. The people from Washington and they'd put them in Kansas. People from Florida, they'd go up to Illinois, you know, they'd put them all over the place to disorient them, to remove any kind of ties to the land that they had. And then they'd say, the only loyalty we have left is to the empire. And this is what they did. They bring in a bunch of people to the northern kingdom of Israel that were not Jews. They were not Israelites. And it says they did not know to worship the Lord. And the Lord sent a plague of lions among the people. So anytime you think you're having a bad day, just remember, it could be a plague of lions. Back in Virginia, we have the 17-year cicadas that come out, and there are these big, huge, nasty things, and it's like a plague of locusts everywhere. And I used to say, well, at least it's not a plague of lions. And they say, what do we do? And they, they send a letter to the empire, and they say, we don't know the gods of this land. This was how people thought back then. So you've got to teach us who the god is so we can pray to him and, and help him not be mad anymore. So they took a bunch of the priests from the northern kingdom and brought them to Israel again. And they said, now teach them how to worship your God. Now that sounds good, but the problem was the northern kingdom had been worshiping golden calves at the place called Bethel and calling it the Lord. This was the sin of Jeroboam in the Old Testament. So now what you've got, you've got some Israelites and a bunch of Gentiles. They're intermarrying with each other. They're worshiping the Lord, quote unquote, but they're not really. They're worshiping idols. They're bringing in all kinds of false ideas. They've still got some sort of weird connection to the Torah, to the Old Testament, but it's distorted. So now the Jews come back with a man named Ezra, especially who has maintained their culture, maintained their faithfulness to the Lord in Babylon. And they say, hey, we're just like you. Let's be buddies. No way. And this is where the tension began. And what ended up happening historically, when the Jews overthrew the Greek empire, and you had what was called the Hasmonean dynasty, where the Jews actually ruled themselves for a little bit. They finally conquered Samaria, which of course made things go much smoother between the two. Now the Jews have conquered Samaria. They're suppressing this false worship, which I guess in a way is a good thing. But then what happens? Rome comes in. Rome overthrows Israel. And the Samaritans see Rome not as oppressors, but as liberators. Now what you've got, you've got Galilee, which is Jewish. You've got Samaria in the middle, which is Samaritan, and you've got Judea in the south, which is, of course, Jewish, and they're all being run by Romans. You can understand the tension between these two groups. And the thing is, each group had something to say on their side. It wasn't like it was obviously your fault. It wasn't obviously your fault. There was so much history there that you could point to any point and say, you did this, you did that. It's not going to be fixed until Jesus shows up. And Jesus loved to push it 
with the Jews, didn't he? When he was talking about Samaritans. He tells a parable, and the hero of the parable is a Samaritan. Jesus, you know that they worship like false gods, right? Yeah, but he was a good Samaritan. This one was a good one. He's planting seeds. They go through Samaria, remember in John chapter 4, and he's talking to the Samaritan woman, and he proclaims the gospel there, and the disciples are really uncomfortable. <laughs> it's really fun because Jews, as she said, have no dealings with Samaritans. But what he did was he planted all these seeds that Philip could come back and harvest. Jesus had said in Samaria to a Samaritan woman in John 4, 23 through 24, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus sees this woman. She figures out he's kind of a religious guy. So she wants to have the fight. She wants to bring it up. Oh yeah, well you worship in Jerusalem. We worship here. So who's right? And Jesus is like, well, we are. He doesn't back down. He's like, you know, salvation is from the Jews, but you know what's going to happen soon? All that's going to fade away because the Lord is going to do a new thing. And she goes, ah, well, when Messiah shows up, he'll tell us everything. And he says, you know, it's funny you should say that because I who speak to you am he. This is what the gospel does, right? The gospel breaks down barriers. Philip shows up and now he's proclaiming a gospel. This Jewish man coming to Samaria and proclaiming good news. And in Jerusalem, there was a huge response, but as a whole, the people didn't want it. The Samaritans wanted it. The Samaritans are coming to salvation. This is what the gospel does. It cuts right through the history of right and wrong. And this is something we've got to learn too, because there's all kinds of tension between people all over the world, whether it's you and your next door neighbor, and you've done stuff, and he's done stuff, and there's no going back to what started, whether it's historical, whether it's between countries, there's all kinds of problems. The gospel comes in and says, we're going to ball all that up and start over again. I just can't forget everything. Well, that's what the Lord did for you. And this is what the Lord tells us to do for each other, to forgive as you have been forgiven. And man, we make hay as a people of holding on to the things that have been done to us, don't we? Right or wrong. Sometimes we are 1,000% right. And the Lord says, yeah, okay, forgive them anyway. Show them my grace, just like I showed you. Because the Lord doesn't hold on to your stuff. The Bible says the Lord took the handwriting of requirement that was against you and nailed it to the cross. That's what the gospel does. Who's ever going to solve the trouble between the Samaritans and the Jews? How are we going to answer all these issues? The gospel didn't. The gospel changed the hearts of the people so that they were willing to look past those things. If I've been forgiven, how could I do any less to you? If we want to see rifts between people healed, if we want to see bodies healed, as he's talking about, the demons are being exercised and the lame are beginning to walk. If we want to see that, you've got to go out doing what? Verse 4, preaching the word. It all comes back to that. And many times, I think it's unfortunate that as Christians, we, we want to come in and try and fix the problems rather than just say, hey, it's about Jesus. It's not about that stuff. Paul had all these people writing him letters in First and Second Corinthians about, he did this to me and she did that, and now we're in this big long court case. And Paul said, wouldn't it be better for you to be defrauded than to drag each other to court? They stole $1,000 from me. I'm taking them to the judge. Paul's like, just, who cares? That's $1,000. Isn't the honor of the name of Jesus better? This is what the gospel does. It cuts right through it. And if you want to see it happen, you've got to be centered and grounded in the gospel, preaching the word. 
Philip was a nobody, just like Stephen. He was a faithful servant. He was waiting tables, as Peter said back in Acts chapter 6. And the Lord said, you did that so well, and you're so faithful to me, I'm going to give you more to do. And he was supported by the Holy Spirit. Let's get to verse 9. All this great stuff is going on. And then at the beginning of verse 9, we see the word, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. We'll pause right there. This is the serpent in the church of Samaria. This, the garden of Samaria has a snake in it, and his name is Simon. But it's not going to go like it did with Adam and Eve. This guy doesn't stand a chance. He's known as Simon Magus throughout church history. Magus is magician. That's where we get the word mage from or magic from. And he's also known to church history as the first heretic. Now, this guy apparently was using some kind of magical power in order to make a name for himself. You got to think of Simon as a witch doctor here. This is a guy that was doing magic in order to puff himself up. He was drawing authority to himself by what he could do. And it does not say, so I'm not going to say. This was one of two things. It was either deceptive, meaning he was a total charlatan, he was a total fraud, and he could convince everybody that he had magical power. Or maybe worse than that, he was demonic. He was doing magic by the power of Satan. Neither one of those is a good thing. So it's not really important for us to figure out which it was because it's not good. And we actually have a lot of church history about this guy. There's a church father named Justin Martyr. And he was an apologist in the church. He wrote all kinds of great books. He was actually a Samaritan. And so he knew all about this guy. Simon would depart from this story. And you're going to understand that, yeah, that, is, that sounds like this guy when we get to the end of this. And he started his own cult here. He would travel around with this woman named Helen, who he had bought out of slavery. And he was saying, this woman is Helen of Troy reincarnated. And she's trapped in this cycle of reincarnation. But I have the power to liberate her from that because I'm a god. I know I look like a man, but I'm actually a god. And he would say things like, you can go to Italy. They've built a statue to me. There was an Italian god named Simone, and he duped a whole lot of people into thinking that they had built it to him. So maybe he was both. Maybe he was demonic and he was a charlatan. He was saying that I'm a, I'm a god, that I have... What, it was a whole weird Gnostic idea that out of my brilliance and my light, there have come new souls, and this is one of them, and I can liberate you too. And so people started following him, and he started saying, I'm a Christian. And he was using the name of Christ to draw people away. And it was an incredibly licentious cult. You could do anything you want. Because the body's not real. What's real is your spirit. So indulge your body as much as you want. Who cares? Very convenient theology, isn't it? Hey, I found this new religion that says I can do whatever I want. Wonderful. And this guy actually died. You know how this guy died? He told his followers to bury him alive. Because he said, I'm a god. I'll come to life on the third day. Well, they buried him. But as the church father Hippolytus wrote, he said, They did this, but he did not rise on the third day, for he was not the Christ. It's like, yeah, okay. 
Weird dude. But what we see here, he is impressed by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's like, from one professional to another, hey, that's some pretty slick tricks you're doing right there, Philip. He's even baptized. And, and it's going to can make this passage confusing, but I don't think that this was a wholehearted conversion, at least we can say it that way. And this is what happens a lot. And we've seen this, we've done ministry in Nepal, we've gone to other places where there are still people doing stuff like this. There are people in the United States of America still doing this. Except now they don't put bones in their nose and dance around. Now they have a nice slick website and they can help you talk to your dead relatives and all the rest of it. For a fee, of course. But when God begins to work, all the rest of that stuff just looks so silly. You know, you, you hear Satanists that talk about, we can chant and say our thing and the table will rise up off the ground. And, oh, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that scary? You should fear us. And then the Lord shows up and starts casting out demons and the crippled begin to walk and the blind can see. It's like, and what was that about your table again? It's all shown to be hollow. And I can tell you guys, we talked about this on Wednesday a few weeks ago, and I want to just say it to all of us. Don't touch that stuff. Anything that is weird, magical, supernatural stuff that's like in addition to the gospel, stay away from that. Because at best, it's deceptive. At worst, it's demonic. And I'm not going to go off on this, but in 2 Kings chapter 1, there's a story where Ahaziah the king is injured. And he calls his servants and he said, go to Ekron, which was a Philistine city. Jews and Philistines were not friends. You know that, right? Sends them there and says, go inquire of the god Baalzebub. You've heard that name, Beelzebub, right? Which means in Hebrew, Lord of the Flies. Go inquire of the Lord of the Flies and find out if I will die or not. Well, Elijah shows up at the border where the guys are going to cross and he says this. He says, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub? You're going to go talk to the fly God to find out if you're going to live or not? He says, I'll tell you right now. Go tell Ahaziah he's going to die. Elijah did not like to mess around. I'll tell you guys, sometimes we need to ask ourselves that question. Is it because there's no God that you've got to go and chase after this? You've got to know what the future is going to hold. The Lord holds the future in his hands. Well, I've just got to go and see because maybe they can help me connect with somebody who's died and passed on. The Lord has given you a hope that you're going to meet these people again. In his good timing. Oh, I've, I've tried everything and I, I haven't recovered from this sickness. Maybe I've got to go find somebody that might do some kind of weird, mystical sort of stuff. The Bible says the Lord is the one who heals all our diseases. Is it because there's no God here that you've got to go somewhere else? I don't know if anybody's dealing with that, but it's appropriate time to bring that up. Because culturally, we've accepted a lot of this stuff. Stay away from all that. People in the Bible, whenever you see magicians or sorcerers or astrologers in the Bible, they always are made to look really ridiculous. The magicians in Pharaoh's court, remember? They bring in their staffs. Moses has had his staff turn into a snake. <laughs> we can do that. And they turn their staffs into snakes. And then Moses' snake eats their snakes. Like, I don't think I'm going to get that staff back. And then you see the witch at Endor. Saul had driven all the witches out of Israel. But now Samuel's dead and he's desperate and he goes to a witch. Bad, bad idea. She says, I'm going to call up the spirit of Samuel for you. And then the spirit of Samuel shows up and she freaks out. She says, oh, this has never happened before. This is different. This is real. Who are you? You're Saul, aren't you? I knew you were Saul. Because this is different than what she'd done. This was different than whatever tricks she had played or whatever demon shows up and pretends to be whoever. This is the real deal because the power of God surpasses all that. That's why the Lord told the children of Israel, you don't need that stuff. 
Don't go up on top of the roof and try and look at the stars and figure out what your future is going to be. I can take care of that. Don't go bow down to your false gods that have ears but can't hear and eyes but can't see and mouths that can't speak. I'm the living God. And this is what happens in Samaria. All of a sudden, Simon is uh, not really anybody special, is he? Which is funny because Philip was nobody special, wasn't trying to make himself out to be special, and the Lord exalted him, right? We humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. He will lift us up. So let's go back to the story. Simon's here, Simon Magus. We know what his future is going to be. He's been baptized. He's following around with Philip, but we're going to see that he was sown among thorns, as Jesus would have put it. The cares of the world are still choking out the life of his of his salvation. Verse 14, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. This is so important. The 12 apostles finally get some good news that there's a revival sparked in Samaria. Really? So they send Peter and John to go check it out. And I don't think this is because they doubted anything. I think this is because, okay, we're going to see what's going on. We're going to exercise responsible oversight. I think also because they wanted to be able to come back and bring testimony to the church because there were a lot of folks in there that probably like, uh, yeah, right. Have they been circumcised yet? Are they following the law yet? Are they going to synagogue yet? And they said, we're going to go and see what's going on. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, remember Jesus had said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. You're seeing the gospel start to spread outward. And these verses are absolutely key for us because they showed up and they prayed for these Christians to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. They saw the gift of the Spirit as indispensable for every Christian. We've talked about this at length, especially back in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4, but I'll bring this up again. When you are saved, the Holy Spirit comes within you, seals you for salvation. Romans chapter 8 says, if you do not have the Spirit, you do not have Christ. You are not saved without the Spirit. What we see here, what we saw in Acts chapter 2, what we saw in Acts chapter 4, is the power of the Spirit coming upon people for life and for ministry. This is not the same as salvation. This is power. This is empowerment to live the Christian life. And there's really no fixed pattern in the book of Acts. If you want to go through the book of Acts and try and say, this is how it happens every time, you're going to be out of luck. Because we're going to see the Gentiles later on. They were filled with the Holy Spirit before they were baptized. The Lord is just trying to show them, hey, you need this. You need to be baptized and you need the power of my Holy Spirit. There are some, when they were saved, the Holy Spirit came upon them in that moment. Samaritans, they believed, they were baptized, they were being trained and discipled. The Holy Spirit came upon them later. The Gentiles in Cornelius' house, the Holy Spirit came upon them, then they were baptized. In Acts chapter 4, the Holy Spirit came upon the church a second time, again. And I've said this before, when you read in Acts and it says Peter or John or Paul, filled with the Spirit, it's not saying that they had already been filled with the Spirit, it's that the Holy Spirit rushed upon them. That's the Old Testament word, that the Spirit would rush upon Samson or rush upon David. This is different than salvation. It's important and it's necessary. The church is absolutely dependent upon the Holy Spirit and His power. We have been given a mission that is impossible to go and take the gospel to the whole world, to bring about the reconciliation of the Jews and the Samaritans. Who's going to do that? People that are filled with God's Holy Spirit. 
and you are going to see this several times in the book of Acts, that they're double checking that people who are being saved are being filled with the power of the Spirit. When Ananias, in a few chapters, is going to pray for Paul, he says, I've come to baptize you that you may believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and that you may be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. The Lord has given us an example in the book of Acts of what the Christian life is supposed to look like. It's supposed to be faithful, diligent, disciplined obedience, and the Holy Spirit comes behind and sets it all on fire. It's like Elijah in the Old Testament. He laid the sacrifice on the altar, he set the wood on the altar, and God sent the fire. That's what we are to expect. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.18, Do not get drunk with wine in which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. He's going to meet some Christians in Acts 19. They're, they're disciples of John. And the question that he asked in order to determine where they stand is, were you filled with the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, uh, we don't really know what that means. <laughs> and he says, okay, well then we got to go back and we got to work through some stuff. And he gives them the full gospel and then he lays hands on them and they're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians goes into detail about what it looks like when the Spirit comes upon you. That it's different for each person, but for every person it's powerful. He says, to some are given the gifts of teaching, to some exhortation, we could say evangelism, to some the gift of tongues, the gift of healing, the gift of miracles. We're seeing Philip exercise that in this passage. Life is impossible in Christ apart from the Spirit's power. And I think a lot of times, I've used this analogy before, it's like trying to be the strongest man in the world who can pull a giant train or a giant plane down this long runway and he's straining and puffing and it's moving but there's an easier way to get the thing moving. Start the engine, fuel it up, and start to fly, start to go. We are to have an experiential, immediate relationship with the Spirit. Everybody's called to evangelize, and Philip goes up, evangelizes, and prays for people to be healed, and they're being healed. That's the Holy Spirit's power. Philip was not special. Philip was not like who Simon was pretending to be. Like, watch out for my magic hands. I touch you and the demon's going to come right out. He knew the Lord and the Lord was with him and the Lord had empowered him. That was the criteria when they looked for the seven men. Find men full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And they found Philip and he was full of both. Well, how do we receive the power of the Holy Spirit? Jesus told us one thing in Luke eleven thirteen. He said, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Acts 4.31, they're under persecution. The whole church comes together and they said, Lord, would you stretch out your hand in power to save? Send out your, your spirit to give us boldness and to substantiate what we're preaching by miracles. And the Lord answered that. Just ask. 2 Timothy 1.6, in this passage, talk about the laying on of hands. It's not that there's something magic by laying on hands. It's let's pray together. Let me pray for you. It's the power of the Spirit. It's for boldness. When you're afraid to share the gospel, you pray for the Holy Spirit to give you boldness. You ever been in one of those moments, you've shared the gospel a hundred times and you're shaking your boots every time. But there's that one time you were sharing and just things are coming out of your mouth and you're like, that was really good. Where'd that come from? I, I, I said something and all of a sudden that's exactly what that person is dealing with. I've had that happen to me where I'll give like an example off the top of my head. It's like, you could be dealing with blank, blank, and blank. And they're like, that's exactly what I'm dealing with. I didn't know that. That was the Holy Spirit empowering me for righteousness. How are you supposed to overcome sin in your own life? You've been trying your whole life. The Holy Spirit comes and changes you. 
for edification. When we come together on Wednesday night, we give room for the gifts of the Holy Spirit to be exercised. And if you've not been out, you've got to come and see it because it's amazing how the Lord speaks right to what needs to be said. If the apostles saw fit to make sure that the Spirit was at work in Samaria, how much more we hear. And there's a lot of us that are like, I, I believe all that. I believe that the Holy Spirit still works. I believe in the gifts. I believe that the Lord empowers us for service. But uh, I'm, I'm just going to stand over here and, and see what happens. Well, that's not good. When do we do that in anything else with the, with the Bible? Well, the Lord told us that we should pray that the Lord sends out laborers into the harvest. So I'm going to sit over here and not pray because that seems a little mystical to me. No, if the Lord said it, do it. Well, it kind of freaks me out. I don't blame you because there's a lot of weird stuff out there that is attributed to the Holy Spirit. There's also a lot of stuff in the Bible that is attributed to the Holy Spirit that would make you and me very uncomfortable. And the Holy Spirit spoke to Ezekiel and said, Ezekiel, I want you to cook your food over human dung. That can't be the Lord. It was the Lord. The Lord came to Hosea and said, Hosea, go and marry a prostitute. God would never tell you to do that, Hosea. Well, he did. The Lord came upon Philip and said, go and preach to the Samaritans. Pray for that person to be healed. Cast out that demon. The Spirit was speaking and using him. And that's the life that we should expect as Christians. And I've said a million times, it doesn't mean it's got to look a certain way. It looks individual. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12. He distributes to each one severally as he wills. But the question is, are you now filled with the power of the Holy Spirit? Because you need it. You need it. Verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Well, it's interesting how the first couple conflicts in the church that were internal had to do with money. Ananias and Sapphira, now this guy. Saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Ooh. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. All right, so Simon sees the Holy Spirit coming upon people. He's seen the miracles. He's seen the demons being cast out. Now he sees Peter and John laying hands on people, and they're being filled with the Spirit. What was happening at that moment? It doesn't say exactly, but we see this several times throughout the book of Acts. And they would kind of sum it up by saying they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. And it could be a number of different things, but it was enough that he goes, all right, I got to learn this trick. If I can learn this, then me laying hands on people causes the Spirit to come upon them. So let, let's, let's have a chat, you and me, Peter. Peter is like the worst apostle you could ask this question. It's so funny that it's Peter to me. He's like, you seem like a reasonable guy, Peter. And John's like, <clears throat> yeah, okay. <laughs> he says, listen, here's some money. Show me how you did that. Let's teach me. What's, what's the chant? What's the ritual? What's the trick? Like, do you have to touch them in a certain place? Or, and it's really funny that there are a lot of people that want to sell you books that tell you exactly how to do what Simon is trying to buy. It's kind of sick. <laughs> But the, the Holy Spirit cannot be bought. I do want to mention really quickly that there are a lot of people that have seen people that are having the same spirit that Simon Mages had 
in the way that they deal with the church and the way they deal with the Holy Spirit, where it all revolves around money, it all revolves around a show, it all has to look a certain way, and you're, you're not doing anything spiritual, you're just whipping people up until they get so excited they'll do anything you ask them to do. And they see that, and they're so rightly disgusted by it that they want to go so far the other way that they say, I don't want anything to do with that. And then they start to teach things like, I had a teacher in, in seminary, God bless him, he's a godly man, so I'm not down on him, but this was wrong. He said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he said, it's so natural you'd never even notice. That is not what the Bible shows us. He was so impressed by what was happening that he wanted to buy that trick. In Acts chapter 2, they were filled with the Spirit and everybody thought, these guys are drunk. These guys are drunk. In the book of Acts chapter 4, there was an earthquake. When the Holy Spirit comes upon people, things change. Sometimes it's just that sense of overwhelming joy and it's an internal thing, but a lot of times the Holy Spirit does things that we cannot explain. History has seen some astonishing things. Read the history of revivals, even under guys like Jonathan Edwards, who was a Puritan. He was a pilgrim. He is certainly no radical foaming at the mouth preacher, but people started having these amazing experiences with the Spirit in his church. And other people started writing to him and saying, you've got to tell people to stop passing out in your church. You've got to stop letting them weep and cry out. You've got to stop this. And he wrote a letter back to them and said, I will not quench the Holy Spirit. He also wrote a book later calling out all these people that were trying to make that stuff happen. They thought that was the key. Oh, we got to get people to wail and scream in church. That's the Holy Spirit. He said, you guys are, are totally backwards on this. But 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. When the fire starts to burn, do not come in and try and pour water on it so that you can control it. But because the Holy Spirit's outpouring can be visible and can be wonderful and miraculous, there are people that want to bottle it and sell it. And that's what Simon wanted to do. And there are people today, like I said, that want to bottle and sell the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing to me. There are people that you can even respect by the books they write and the way they preach and you want to get them to come to their, your church and they send you this big long list of stuff they need and here's how many thousands of dollars I want and you have to guarantee there'll be this many people and it's, it's carnal and wrong. It's not good. Peter shows us how to handle these kinds of people. I used to have to field all the emails that came in back in Virginia. I was assistant pastor at a much larger church and when you start to grow, people start coming to you and wanting to come to you. And it was really amazing. It wasn't all bad, but some of these guys like, hey, we just feel the Lord is leading us to come to you. We, we hear what the God is doing and we want to come and, and share in music or, or in preaching or whatever. And, and I would usually say, no, thank you. We've got everything going. But sometimes they'd be like, okay, well, what do you got? And the list of demands these people would give is just unbelievable. And they'd be like, well, we were, we're going to need uh, $10,000 up front. For, uh, for an evening. If you want us to come for a weekend, that'll be $25,000. I'm serious. And then and we need to have a hotel that we pre-approve and we need to make sure that you provide, all, it's, it's, I could go on and on. It was crazy. And so then what I would write back is I'd say, uh, no, thank you. I'm not interested in doing any of that. Then what they do is they do what Simon did and they say, well, what I think you need to understand is how special our ministry is. See, we're somebody great. And here you go watch some testimony videos and go read our bio. And here's a news article that was written about us. It's like, don't you know who I am? It's like, no, first of all, and I've learned everything I need to know about you. But I never quite said what Peter said, which in the ESV and every other translation softens this when he says, may your silver perish with you. In the Greek, what he says there is, he says, 
to perdition with you and your silver. If we want to put this in our language today, this would be the equivalent of Peter saying, to hell with you and your money. Peter, take it easy, man. He's serious. How dare you try to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit? You, you think you're a Christian? He was baptized, Peter. I don't care. Look at this guy. You've got nothing to do with this. That attitude does not come from the Lord. So you better pray and maybe God will forgive you. That's what Peter is saying to this guy. Peter, don't you know who this is? This is an influential guy in this community. Hey, if we can get him on our team, everybody will come. Peter said, I want nothing to do with this guy and his money. He commands him to repent, and he's got this discerning gift from the Holy Spirit to see what's going on. He sees you're bitter and sinful. What is it about bitterness that causes people to be like this? When you're bitter, and you see people that have more than you, and they've got something else, you get bitter in your soul. And you start to try to do it the right way, and it doesn't work, and you feel like everybody around you is doing it the wrong way, and they're getting ahead. You get bitter, and you say, forget it. I'm going to lie. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to do whatever I can to manipulate people so that I can be elevated. I'm going to find some girl and say that she's been reincarnated. I'm going to find some idol in Italy and say, that's my idol. They built it to me. And Peter sees right through that. You're full of bitterness and iniquity. That's not how the church is to operate. You, you want to come and do this little backdoor deal to figure out how people are filled with the Holy Spirit? You want to come give me money? In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2, I like to think that this is our verse here as far as how we do ministry. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2, he says, We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. I love that. Let me read that again. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul's like, I refuse to manipulate. I refuse to hold back truth. I refuse to sneak around the back door. I refuse to flatter people. He says, I'm just going to plainly speak the truth and then let the chips fall where they may. That ought to be our motive as well. We are not so interested in filling up this church with people that we're going to be sneaky about it that we're going to flatter people, that we're going to conceal some things. Ah, let's not talk about that because people don't like it. Let's not talk about the blood because it freaks people out. Let's not talk about sin because people don't like talking about sin. Let's not talk about hell because, no, we don't do that. We do not tamper with God's word. We don't practice cunning. We're not underhanded. It's open statement of the truth. That way, at least if people disagree with you, Paul is saying, at least they can say he's honest. At least he believes what he says. I think a great example that George Whitfield and Benjamin Franklin were great friends. Benjamin Franklin was not a Christian. He did not believe any of that stuff. But what he would say is, I would listen to George Whitfield preach, and man, that's somebody who believes what he says. How can I help you? What can I do for you? Can I publish your books for you? Can I give you some money to help you out? It was, it was a strange relationship they had, but there was respect for the open statement of the truth. So Simon... The magician. Was he saved? I would consider him to be what you call a thorny Christian, the, the seed that is sown among thorns, and it grows up, but the cares of this world choke it out. It's really more about how you end. It's not just about how you begin. The beginning is important, but we know how this guy finished his race, and it was not good. And I think that's a little, little helpful for us, too, because we've all been part of outreaches and evangelism events, and you see tons of people come forward, and it's great, but then maybe 
five of them continue to follow with the Lord. That was happening back then too. You had people that were responding to the message, but their heart wasn't in it. Or maybe they were excited for a few moments and then they got over it. It was what was happening in Samaria. So yeah, I went. I went to the, to the revival and it was great. They prayed for me and then I walked away. It was happening back then too. This is what Jesus said. He said, the kingdom of God is like a net full of fish. You bring it in, you got good fish and bad fish, and at the end, I'll sort them out. That's what the Lord tells us to do, right? You draw the net, I'll sort out the good and the bad fish. He said that the enemy would come and sow tares among the wheat, remember? That the angels would be the ones sorting them out at the very end. So that's why it's, it's, it's best to proclaim the gospel, to take everybody at their word. Love believes all things, right? And you speak up when you need to speak up, but... You don't stress about that. You trust that the Lord is going to handle it. He asks for Peter to pray for him, but you don't hear anything else about him in the word. And you can kind of get the sense that he did not get this. But there are still those people that want to make merchandise of the Holy Spirit. But we don't do that. It's important for us to know, too, that I don't have to worry about what somebody down the road is doing or what somebody across the country is doing or in another place. We can just be faithful right here where the Lord has put us. I'll say, I didn't plan on saying any of this, but it's really easy to get on the internet and you see everything that is going bad. Every wrong idea, every bad thing that's going on, every, every cuckoo church where they're doing something awful, every bad podcast, every blog that is preaching false doctrine and you get angry and you get nervous and it can totally wreck what God is doing in your own life. Because then all of a sudden you get suspicious of everybody when you come to church. And you can't talk about the Lord in a positive way. You can only talk in a negative way. And it sucks your joy right out of it. Peter, John, and Philip, Simon was there and it was terrible. They didn't let that ruin what God was doing. God is still doing a revival in Samaria and they're going to continue. So we're always on guard against those who want to poison the well. There's always going to be people that come in. There'll be people that drift through those doors and they all seem great. But this is also why Paul would tell Timothy, don't lay hands on anybody quickly. Wow, Simon the magician got saved. Let's make him an elder. That would have been a disaster, wouldn't it? He says, just wait. You don't, you don't need to do that yet. Take it easy. Trust the Lord. Keep it centered on Jesus and his word, which is what they did. Verse 25, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. We're going to head back, but we're going to stop in every village and proclaim the gospel. You know, we speak about the power of the spirit, how we all have to be empowered. We all want to experience the presence of God, but it's not for its own sake. We do not... Seek the power of the Spirit so that we can have great church meetings. I love great church meetings. I've been in some meetings that I will remember for the rest of my life. I've been in meetings where I've seen the impact of what happened in that hour and a half still resounding today in people's lives. It's awesome. You love that. You have those moments with the Lord where you're in a worship service and it just gets you. And now you're on your knees before the Lord and you remember that. It's not good to try and chase that, right? Where, where you want to say, oh, we need the Spirit so that we can have a great meeting. The Holy Spirit's power is for the mission. We are to take the gospel out, to take him at his word and see his word fulfilled. Oh, I wish I could see a miracle. Okay, well, get out there and share the gospel with some people. Because we're living in a culture like this one, where people are getting so hard into the gospel that the Lord has to break in and do something amazing. The Lord didn't tell us, go out and make sure that you do lots of miracles. He says, if you go, I will support you 
with the power of my spirit. I will support you with words that you didn't plan on, but you just said, and they were the right ones for the moment. I will support you by sending you to places that you didn't expect to be sent, but you ran into somebody that needed to be there. We're going to see that next week with the Ethiopian. We have a mission to fulfill, to take God at his word. And I'm going to close with this, this verse. This is a story from the Old Testament. I've shared it before, I'm sure. 1 Samuel 14, 6. This is when the children of Israel were at war with the Philistines. Again, it happened a lot. And Saul and his court were at the top of a mountain under a pomegranate tree having a prayer meeting. So that the priest was there with an ephod. They were praying, Lord, what should we do? Meanwhile, the army is being routed and people are hiding in the caves. The villages are being burned to the ground and there are people defecting over to the side of the Philistines and they keep on saying, God, what do you want us to do? And Jonathan gets sick of that. And 1 Samuel 14, Jonathan goes over to the camp of the Philistines in the middle of the night. And he said to his young man who carried his armor, let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. He said, hey, let's go see if we can take the whole army by ourselves. What makes you think that we could do that? I don't know. God can do anything, can't he? Do you have a dream or a vision or something like that? No, but I mean, he can, right? Right? Don't you think he could? And he and his armor bearer get up there and they start taking out this army. And you know what the Lord does? The Lord sends an earthquake to the, the camp where the Philistines are and they all start to flee and panic. And then he sends boldness into the hearts of the Israelites and they begin to fight. If you need it to be spelled out in gold plates for you, this is not what God does. The Lord gives you a strong maybe. Jonathan knew the character of God and he knew the seriousness of the situation. So he took a step of faith and God supported him by his power. Just like Philip. Philip had the character of the Lord. He had the promise of the Lord. So he stepped out in faith and God supported him with his power. The power of God is for the mission. There are some that are resistant and they're closed off to the spirit. Others want to use the spirit for their own carnal means. Both of those things are wrong. Get in the game and see God at work. Because, you know, the devil can toss us around all he wants. When you start to step up, when you start to see thousands of people in Jerusalem get saved, the devil is going to stir up some persecution. But these Christians were seeds. They were scattered by the will of the devil, but they were sown by the hand of the Lord. And the Spirit was with them every step of the way. And even when people like Simon Magus showed up, who were trying to spoil what God was doing, the foxes that spoiled the vineyard, as the Song of Solomon puts it, the Lord said, ah, you can't stop me. You can't stop what I'm going to do if the church is faithful and obedient to the Lord.